I want to say, brethren, that we, as you know, are living at the end of this age, and we've had some of the most awful earthquakes in the last several weeks that have been in modern times. We had this terrible earthquake uh, over in, uh, I think it was in Okinawa, and we had another one in Indonesia, and then we had the huge earthquake in Haiti. Then we had one uh, soon after that in Chile. They're calling it Chile. We Americans you always call it Chile, like we're eating chili and beans. But I noticed the people there call it Chile. And uh, isn't that correct? I think that's the way they pronounce it. Okay, so I'm trying to learn to be uh, a little bit more international here. And uh, then, of course, uh, we've had one after that in Turkey, as you know, which people had just got overlooked almost because it was soon after the Chilean earthquake, and yet it killed over 50 people. And then just a couple of days ago, we had two or three more aftershocks in Chile, and one of those was 7.2 magnitude, which is bigger than the earthquake that killed about 320,000 people in Haiti. But, of course, it didn't kill near as many there because they're so much better prepared for it there in Chile. But these are really quite significant, and things like that are speeding up. And other things are speeding up, as you know, all over the world to show that we are at the end of an age. But I was glancing at something Mr. Ames had the other day, and I asked if I could get a copy, and he made a copy for me. It's the front page of The Economist magazine. A lot of you know that The Economist is considered by many educated people and many others as the greatest uh, news magazine on earth. It's very educational. It's very, it's not super conservative. It's, it's reasonably liberal, but yet not, not too much. Very well done. But on the front, they have gender side. What happened to 100 million baby girls? What happened to 100 million baby girls? And I don't have time to read all the article goes on several pages. In fact, there are two or three articles devoted to this right here put together. But they tell circumstances and examples, but they show how in the nation of India, as you know, uh, they are trying to be sure that they have more men. Most families want more boy babies than girl babies, so they will often kill the, the girl babies. And in China, they're even worse. They have this one-child policy, and so often they will uh, kill the little babies. Now, they often kill, as we know, hundreds of millions over a period of time. Uh, through abortion, but these are in addition to that. So when you add in the perhaps half a million or half a billion babies that have been aborted over the last 20 or 30 years into all of this, you're getting up into a very, very big figure. And, of course, it shows how this woman was visiting. A, 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 she was a Chinese writer visiting an outlying village here, and there was a low sob and when she came into this place, uh, and suddenly I thought a, I heard a slight movement in the pail. She saw a tiny foot pick, poke, poking out of the pail. She thought the midwife must have dropped the baby alive into the slop. I nearly threw myself at it, but the two policemen who had accompanied me held my shoulders. Don't move. You can't save it. It's too late. But that's murder. You're the police. The little foot was still now. The policeman held me on a little few more minutes. They didn't let her save the little baby girl because they were murdering the little baby girl right in front of her eyes. And she was a journalist. This goes on all the time all over India, China, and many other places. A lot of you have read it. I read news more than most of you. 
I'm kind of a news fiend, as my wife could say. <laughs> I read a lot, but it just goes on and on and on. Does this world need a right government? If you're a woman, you better believe it. <laughs> this type of thing is spreading, brethren, and all of us had better believe it. We need God's kingdom. We need an intervention because the world is in a horrible, horrible situation. You know, the Christ, the Bible shows that when Christ comes back, there's not going to be some big welcoming party for him. And the earth is going to be fighting him. Notice in Revelation chapter 19, if you would. Let's turn to Revelation 19 here at the beginning. Turn to Revelation 19, and here you find the description of Christ coming back in beginning in verse 10. And it's not, it's a kind of a prelude to it, this verse 10. Here he sees this powerful angel, and John falls at his feet to worship him. But this angel said, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And brethren, we need to realize that prophecy is not something apart from the gospel. Prophecy is a vital part of the gospel. A vital part, because it's telling about the culmination of what the gospel is all about. The good news of the coming kingdom of God. The government of God to be set up on earth. And so that is the gospel. That is part of the good news, even though it often describes the bad news that has to come first. It always culminates in the good news. Then I saw heaven open, John writes, verse 11, Behold a white horse, and how he comes with a flame of fire, dipped in blood, called the Word of God. He has armies in heaven following him. Out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them, the nations of this earth, with the rod of iron. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists think you go off to heaven and you go over the books for a thousand years, and I guess they go over the records of the sinners on this earth to see what's going to happen to them. One of our readers or members sent me a whole book of Adventist doctrines. I was looking at it briefly uh, just the other day. I haven't had a time to study it. I've known those things before, but it's good to get it in detail from their own their own uh, book in detail. But that's what they believe. And here all these scriptures tell us about Christ coming back and how he's going to set up a government on this earth and he's going to rule not up in heaven, but rebellious nations right here on this earth with a rod of iron. As I've told you before, I used to wonder at times why we have to rule with a rod of iron. That sounds kind of uh, mean or something. But when you hear about them uh, butchering and murdering 100 million little girls, you think, well, these hard-headed two-legged jackasses need a rod of iron to straighten them out and to wake them up. And Christ is going to have to rule people that way before it's all over to help them get the picture. And he's going to do that when he first comes back. So I hope we can understand that. Excuse my French. <laughs> say when you say something bad, you say, excuse my French. So, of course, jackasses is not a cuss word. That just means a donkey. So it's all right. Anyway, so he comes back to rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. He's King of the other kings and Lord of Lords. And so then is everyone going to just love him and, and uh, want to do what he says? Notice, 
Then he tells about the great battle that's going to take place and how the birds are going to hate the flesh of all these people, free and slave, both small and great, who are there to fight Christ at his second coming. And verse 19, I saw the beast, the coming dictator in Europe, then the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against Christ as he comes back and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, this coming great religious leader, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That's Jesus Christ. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's not a very pretty picture. Corpses all over and birds swooping down and eating them by the millions. God is not pleased with what is going on on this earth. When you murder and murder tens and tens of millions of little girls, and in other ways you send your young men off when they don't really know very much, they just get excited and in various nations and hear the bugles blaring and they were bounding at drums, we're going to go off and fight. So the older men, my age, and, and men and their leaders in their 40s and 50s and 70s, they send off these young 16, 18-year-old kids to kill each other, and they're murdering them just in a different way under Satan's government, which is in charge of this earth. So we want to realize the need of a real government set up on this earth. And brethren, I hope we understand that. This world needs God's government. Remember Revelation chapter 2 and I want to say that my title then and my subject is Our Soon Coming Job. What are you going to be doing and what am I going to be doing within the next 15 to 25 years if we make it into the kingdom of God or if some of you younger people are not yet in the church but you live over as human beings? And I hope it will be a lot less than 15 years, but we don't know that. But what are we going to be actually doing? I think in God's church, and I know some here, I'm sure, and around the world, because you're human, and you've heard, as I did growing up, all these sermons and little ladies talking in Sunday school about how Christ, if He comes, He's going to come, and everyone's going to have peace, and how we all just love each other and be nice little boys and girls. And they don't understand the need of a real government of God at all. And they think most of them, they're not even talking about Christ coming here. Most of them, the vast majority, think we go off to heaven with nothing to do. And we play on harps. And that's drummed into their heads so much. And it's been drummed into the heads of most of you older people. You know that that's what you grew up with. That it somehow the idea of a literal government right over here where you can get on an airplane and be there in several hours in Jerusalem. It seems a little unreal sometimes, doesn't it? You know, it, it does. It seems a little unreal sometimes. But we've got to wrap our mind around the fact that is about to happen. And I say about. I don't want to set dates. I am tempted to set dates, but I shouldn't do that. I've always warned not to set exact dates. But I'm certain within the next 15 to 25 years, probably, <laughs> better say, that's going to happen. And I think Christ will be on this earth in, in my personal opinion, in less than 15 years. And he will be setting up a government right here on this earth. And I've been to Jerusalem three or four times. Some of you have been there. There's a city right over here. You can just fly right over there. That's where he will be. 
And we're going to be part of that government. That's what Christ has called us to be, and we have to get ready for that as a reality, brethren. Christ is speaking back in Revelation chapter 2, if you turn that to Revelation chapter 2 at this point, and beginning in verse 26. He's speaking here in the first person. He who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Obviously, rebellious nations on the earth. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They're not nice nations up in heaven. They're the nations that need to be ruled with a rod of iron. As the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also receive from my father. So he's not saying he's going to, he's saying they're going to do that. The saints, you and I, if we make it, are going to be ruling with a rod of iron. And you ladies, I've talked to many ladies in the past about God's kingdom over the last 57 years of my ministry. And some of the older ladies have said, well, I really don't feel like just being a king and bossing people around or killing people or throwing them in jail or whatever. But, you know, women do have a powerful protective instinct. And when you see, as you will, in the years to come, these horrible things happening... And if you're given supernatural power and great wisdom, and you'll have a lot more power than any man does today, you won't need to defer to a man, you'll be a spirit being, you're going to want to use that power to protect people, to help them in the coming government of God. And God will guide you to do it the right way. Over in chapter 5 and verse 9, the saints here are pictured singing a new song saying to Christ, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. And as our song leader or the uh, whoever was saying this earlier on, we need to be thinking about being redeemed here just before Passover and constantly do that. But I did preach on that a few weeks ago, and Mr. Ames gave a wonderful sermon last Sabbath talking about repentance and salvation and so on, so I don't think we need to preach that again now, but this certainly ties in with what Christ is planning. He's not just our Savior, He's our coming King. So you were slain to redeem us by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth, not up in heaven. Again, I want you young men and young women here and all around the world to realize this will involve you. You're going to have to have part, if you're converted, or even converted in two, three, five years before the kingdom is set up, to have part in teaching others a right way of life as kings and priests. And remember, both terms are used here and are used a number of times. The kings in ancient Israel were ruling in the civil government, fighting the wars, enforcing the laws, but the priests were giving the sacrifices, but they were the teachers too. And they were often the singers. They had whole categories of the Levites who were the musicians. And they were praising God, worshiping God, but also teaching. And so it involves preaching and ruling and teaching as well. So we need to realize that aspect of it and prepare for that, each one of us. Brethren, this world needs right now, number one, a different religion. We all understand that, I think, or we wouldn't be here. The religions of this world do not recognize the true God, the Creator God, 
And they certainly do not obey this book where Jesus said, you're to live by every word of God. And they don't do that. And most of them don't even try to do that. It needs a new religion. The world needs, secondly, a new government. And the new government of God is going to be based on that true religion. And thirdly, we need to think about it as we're thinking and planning ahead what we should be doing. The world needs desperately an entire new educational system. A whole different way of educating people. Fourthly, the world needs a whole new media. A whole different approach to the media, to the arts, to the music, to all kinds of entertainment, motion pictures, television, sports, so that in everything like that is going to have to be put in a different way and approached in a different way. In Christ's government, we've already seen that Christ is king. He comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. We read there in Revelation. I won't go over that again. I trust we all understand that. But notice again by review, most of you know this, but it's good to review these key things once in a while. In Ezekiel, if you turn back to Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 37, here he is talking about how Ephraim uh, and, and Joseph will be made one stick with Judah and how the Jews and the other tribes of Israel will be made one nation again when Christ comes back. That tells us something a little apart from my sermon, but at that time, people are going to learn who they are. If they're an Assyrian, they will learn they're Assyrian. If they are Israelite, they're going to learn they're Israelite. If they're Japhetic, they're going to learn that. And they'll appreciate the strengths of each one of the races that God made and God intended. And the different races and ethnic groups will probably be put back after Christ is coming. Right now, there'd be a big fight if that were done. I know that. But it's going to be so different when this earth is absolutely shattered and people are crying and starving and everything, I don't think they'll be near the resistance at that time. And each one will be led in that way by God. But then he says in verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So they're going to have one shepherd. David <clears throat> is a king and a teacher. And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And again, brethren, I preached upon this at the Feast of Tabernacles once in a while, but I haven't done this here for a while. Remember, all of you and you young people, it may not seem exciting to you, but if you would go back from time to time as you're reading the Bible, and I hope you'll read the Bible a lot more, all of you, and read Exodus chapters 20 through 24, and read Leviticus chapter 16 through 27, and read Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28. Those are the main areas, and there are statutes scattered through numbers as well, but those are the main areas. Deuteronomy gives them more thoroughly, Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28, and read the statutes of God. Why? Because those explain in a letter of the law manner, the way of life that we're going to have to teach in God's kingdom. You say, well, some of those don't apply literally or technically in the letter of the law today. That's true. That's true. And in God's kingdom, we will be 
uh, that is the human beings will be converted many of them will be dealt with in a somewhat different way that is the judgments and the, the uh, uh, penalties of death and whipping so 39 lashes those won't be administered in the same way but the basic laws are going to be the same tithing is a statute the holy days are a statute and all that way of life as you've heard me explain if a, you build a house and you have a flat roof, as they often do in the Middle East, you're to put a railing around it so people don't fall over. And all kinds of detailed statutes are given throughout the Old Testament about cleanliness, about health, about all kinds of things that show us a right way of life. And if you study those statutes with God's Spirit and begin to think, and you remember David said, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Is God's law your meditation all the day? No, I don't think any of us like King David. David did not have the New Testament, so he had more need perhaps to meditate on the law. And secondly, he was king over all Israel for 40 years, and he was administering that law all day long, literally as the king. So he had, was part of his full-time job. And thirdly, David was closer to God than most of us too. So he spent his time that way. He meditated on God's law. But we certainly should emulate David to the degree that we can and meditate on these principles and think in our minds, how would I administer this principle in tomorrow's world? How should that be applied so that when the time comes, Christ can give you a bigger job faster because your mind is already attuned to His mind. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. And you're to have the mind of Christ and learn to think like Christ thinks in every way that you possibly can. And Christ is the one, as the God of Israel, who inspired those statutes, you see. That wasn't some harsh old God the Father. That was Christ who gave those statutes. And so we should meditate on them. But anyway, David will be teaching that. And he tells about the people, they shall walk in my judgments and verb my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob. And they will dwell there they and their children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. So King David is going to be resurrected from the dead and put over all 12 tribes of Israel literally on this earth. Then, as you know, in Luke chapter 22, and again, I've used this quite a number of times, in Luke chapter 22, near the end of his life, Jesus talked to his disciples who had been faithful. And he said in verse 28, Luke, Luke 22, verse 28, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, the coming government of God, and sit on thrones, denoting kingship, rulership, on thrones, judging, which is a synonym and used that way throughout the Bible, for ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. So each one of the original 12 apostles, Judas being replaced by Matthias, will be in charge of one individual nation of Israel. One of the apostles will be over Judah. Another one will be over Benjamin. Another one will be over, of course, you know, Zebulun. Each one will have a ruler over them, one of the 12 apostles. And that's going to be a big job for them. 
Now, God often uses, continually uses, either Judah or Israel, and generally Israel is a type of the whole world. So this shows there's a government structure already in God's mind. Christ, then under Christ is King David, and under King David is the twelve apostles, and under the twelve apostles, as you'll see, individual Christians. Now, one thing I'm leaving out that Mr. Armstrong mentioned, and he tried to put specific titles into this. I don't want to say something in a wrong way, but I did help him when he wrote his book years ago on the wonderful world tomorrow. He had appointed Job as the reconstruction boss to redo the earth because he supposed that Job was the great architect who built the great pyramid. Later, Dr. Head, Mr. Richard Page, and others came to realize Job probably didn't live at that time, and he had at first, I think it was Paul was to be over all the Gentiles and many other things. And I said, well, Mr. Armstrong, I was very close to him then. And in all respect, I said, we can't be sure of all those exact things. You know what I mean? We don't know unless the Bible says so. I put myself in the bad seat as the example. I said, I wouldn't want to point all these people. And then uh, even if I made it into God's kingdom, then Christ calls me into the back room. And he says, well, Rod, he says, you appointed all these people for me. And you don't leave me any room to appoint my own leaders. (laughs) Oh, that wouldn't be too good, you see. So we can't do that. But Mr. Armstrong did indicate that probably... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might be a a trio of high-level advisors. They were the patriarchs. It's not showing them directly ruling over nations. And that probably Moses and Samuel and Elijah and others would be given very high offices too. Elijah might be put over all the churches, you know, all over the world, over religion. But we again, we don't know that. And we don't know that Paul, he had Paul over all the Gentiles as uh, David was over the Israelites. And then later he switched, later as many of the older men know, I'm sure Mr. Apartheid will remember that. And remember he had Paul over that. Then later he switched and decided, well, Daniel had an even higher position because he was ruling, actually carrying out the rule over the whole Gentile world, you know, under King Nebuchadnezzar and allowed to be the ruler for a while. So then he decided it must be Daniel. But, of course, we don't know. So there are going to be high-level advisors and uh, councils and so on beside these exact offices that I have outlined here. But I'm just giving you the governmental structure, and it's good for us to think about it. This is our job. This is our responsibility in a few years. And we need to think, boy, this is real. Specific people are going to be there, and it's going to be exciting to be there with them. And I hope we all feel that way. Now turn back to Luke 19. We see the 12 apostles are each over one of the tribes of Israel. And you turn to Luke 19 now. And here in verse 11, as Jesus, as they heard him speak parables, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because these people thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You see, people today sometimes think that, and somehow way back there they thought, because he talked about it being a real government, which certainly shoots in the foot the Protestant idea. It's all a warm feeling in your heart or something. They thought the kingdom of God was going to come right away, and Christ would kick the Roman army out, you see. That's what they thought. But then he gives this parable about a nobleman goes off to receive a kingdom, and most even Protestants recognize he's talking about Christ going off to heaven and receiving the government and coming back again. So when he returned, why he called his disciples to servants to see how they'd use the money that he'd given them. 
by trading. He wanted to see what they'd done with their time, their talents, their opportunities. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina, which is a measure of money, I'm reading the New King James Version, has earned ten minas. So he'd increased what he'd been given ten times. And what was his reward? Playing on a harp and having nothing to do? No. Well done, good servant, because you faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. So again, the rule, the, the reward that we will have is not just being there, brethren, but we've got to prepare for more than that. And you younger women and you older women and you teenagers and young people, this is very real. And some of you are going to have that opportunity. And if you live on over and are not, some of you that are still in your early teens or below, you may still be physical beings, but you may be under these spirit beings in those jobs and they will appoint you to responsibility so you can be learning and growing in the same type of thing. And I'm sure that's going to be done because everybody needs to learn God's way of life, even as a child. The second came, Master, your mind has earned five minas. He said in verse 19, likewise, you also be over five cities. So the reward is rulership in a coming world government to be set up here on earth. Then one key thing that Mr. Armstrong often described that I want, don't want to read the whole passage, but back in Matthew chapter 25, if you turn back to Matthew 25, Again, another a parable about Christ going off to his kingdom to receive his kingdom. Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, called his servants, delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave five talents. You see, in the other parable, it was mine as a measure of money, and of course this is too, a different type of measure. And But we could say human talents, physical talents, spiritual strengths, and so on to another two, to another one. And notice this part of the verse in verse 15. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. And then the one who received five talents doubled them. And God gave him a good reward. And each one according to his own ability increased what God gave them. But God rewards people, at least in this life, according to their ability. And no doubt in God's kingdom, if they have overcome more and if they have grown more with what they had to do with in the first place, as these parables all indicate, he will give each one different levels of responsibility. For instance, back here, uh, brethren, if we make it into the kingdom of God, we're going to be very grateful. But let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. We should be very grateful just to be there. I know that. But nevertheless, God wants us to be, as they say in the army, you know, in the army ads, which isn't a very good way to say it, but be all you can be. Well, you're not going to be all you can be by being taught to kill other people, frankly. They grab onto these adages. But back here in the first Corinthians, he says in verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. You know, one is more beautiful and, and magnificent looking than another. So also is the resurrection from the dead. You see, we're going to be given different levels of glory, different levels of responsibility in the coming government of God. So each of us should try to do all that we can with what we have to do with. And God wants us to do that. Some have less to do with, some more. 
But then God also is very fair in the way he judges. If you turn back to Luke and chapter 12 here, uh, I think it is. I hope I remember this. I don't have this one in my notes, but I thought this would be helpful for you. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, and uh, it says in verse 48, Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, He said, he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. You see, the more capacity you have, the more God requires of you. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So each of us is required to do the best we can with what we have to do with. Some of us are called earlier in life. As I mentioned a couple times, you get tired of hearing my stories. If you get too tired, you can tell me sometime I'll quit telling them. But one of the first men I baptized was named A.M. Coffin. And he was 84 years old, and I was 21 years old. And uh, he was he was old enough to be my great-grandfather. And uh, But I don't think God expected as much of him as he does me. You see what I mean? Because I was just 19 when I was baptized and, and of course, 21 when I baptized him. And uh, so, anyway, it, it, quite a difference there. I'm, I'm held accountable to grow more, to accomplish more. But he was a nice man. And he later flew all the way from Texas out to to out near Reseda and out west to uh, Calabasas. And these places were kind of open hills out there west of Pasadena in those days and bought some purebred Nubian goats and had them sent back. He had this millionaire backing him. He wanted to help out the servicemen in these uh, veterans' hospitals. He knew, he studied it, he had them, that he felt the purebred Nubian goat's milk was the best milk on earth and would strengthen them. So he was trying to do good. <laughs> and I got to drive him around. Mr. Armstrong found out I baptized him, and he let me take a college car and go drive him around and so on. Then this multimillionaire came out that was backing him to see what he was doing. They were friends, and this man himself was not wealthy, but the old other man, I guess they'd been childhood friends or something. Anyway, he came out. And they were staying in the old green hotel. And after the, we took, went to lunch or dinner and the man, the millionaire paid the bill. But I noticed he spent, seemed like half an hour going over the bill and looking at every dot and every tittle. And then he gave the very smallest tip he could possibly give. I noticed that the millionaires are tight as tightwads sometimes. So that, that was a little lesson. I met a number of people like that. They're not all like that. But anyway, that was kind of interesting. But he did help Mr. Coffin buy these purebred Nubian goats. Anyway, uh, he was trying to serve his fellow man in that way. So God requires each one of us to do the best we can with what we have to do with. So each in our, each in our human state, we're going to be given gifts according to our natural ability. And in God's kingdom, we'll be given a reward based on what we do with that human ability in the time and circumstances. You know, God is able to take all of that into consideration in a perfect way, which we're not now. But it is important. Uh, we have found, and mo- most management books tell us, and if you're a king in the coming kingdom, we've got to learn to squit, fit square pegs into square holes and round pegs into round holes. Everyone is not called to be a minister. 
Everyone is not called to be a deacon. Everybody is not called to be a businessman. Everyone is not called to be, you know what I mean? We have different talents, and it's good for us to recognize that and to recognize our strengths. And you young people often try to to think about that. What are your strengths? But also try to recognize your limitations. I have certain severe limitations, and I know that. And I know that I know. I'm, I'm glad uh, it's a certain strength I've had that I re- at least recognize it. Some people have something that are, they're, they're terrible in and they don't really know it. But it's good to recognize what you cannot do and then you can, you know, learn to get by that way. But you want, don't, don't want to make that your profession. And, uh, I know I took a test in a, a big, huge test battery, uh, one time, a, a vocational guidance test. And the man told me that my, Manual dexterity, and this was way back before my stroke, this is about 40 years ago, he said my manual dexterity was the second worst he'd ever tested. So always, as Monica knows, my writing is messy, and I'm a messy eater, and, and now with my stroke, I have a hard time even buttoning my shirt sometimes. <laughs> my wife has to help me, but all kinds of things. That's gotten worse, but you know what I mean? Some people are real quick at doing things with their hands, others are not. So I would not be a real good person to to be a uh, a man, uh, a designer, designing clothes and sewing and using a sewing machine and fitting things together or working with some kind of harassment or something where I had to use my hands in that way. Certainly not a good typist or a good whatever. So you have to understand those things about yourself and think, what am I good at? And try to plan your life to use your strengths capitalize on your strengths, learn to minimize your weaknesses the best you can. Now, back in Exodus chapter 18, brethren, back in Exodus chapter 18 uh, is a principle here that we want to learn as we are preparing to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. Even outside management books written by carnal men often refer to this because they know this is the very first place that they know of in history or anywhere where principles of management are given. Interesting. God talks about management back here in Exodus 18, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge, you see, the people. In this case, he was literally deciding problems they had had. And the people stood him up before him from morning till evening. He was just standing there, one man with a great bunch of people coming, probably dozens or hundreds of them. And their father says, what are you doing? You're going to wear yourself out. Let me tell you what to do. When you have a difficulty, or they do, and come before you, you judge between one another, or that, that as Moses told his father-in-law, he was doing that. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Of course, that's what we should do. We should make them known the statutes of God and His laws magnified. But Moses' father-in-law said, The thing you do is not good. And God put this in the Bible as something we should follow, obviously, but the way it's used. Both you and these people who are with you will wear yourselves out. Moses, you're trying to do everything. We've had ministers in the work in years past that just tried to do everything and, and, and you can't do that. You just wear yourself out. You'd have a heart attack. You've got to delegate. In books on management, they have a saying, delegate or die. <laughs> and uh, one of the wonderful men that came with us, I'd better not mention him. He, he's dead now himself. Not for this reason. He's a wonderful man. 
and a friend, and I respected him very much, but he, he was a little crusty near the end of his life, and he, every time, the last three to five times I saw him, he kind of bawled me out, which I put up with. I still loved him anyway. And every time he would tell me, he says, well, he says, he said, Mr. Meredith, he said, you have all this system going and all these uh, different offices and departments. And he said, everything was better when we all reported to you. And I said, well, John, his name was not John. He said, uh, I said, when, uh, when, if I did that today, now that the work has grown, I would just die. I would have a heart attack. I can't, I can't have everyone reporting to me. And he never did fully figure that out. But anyway... He, he's told, you listen to me, and he says, you stand before God with the, for the people, verse 19, so you bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them. You see, Moses had the responsibility at least to lead in the teaching of the laws and God's statutes and show them the way in which they must, must walk, or to teach them, and the leading minister or judge would teach the people this way. Moreover, you don't do it all. You shall select from all the people able men. So he was told to select not just nice men. God does not want a buddy system where you get people that have similar social interests that you do and just promote them. That is not right. Some of you know we used to have that in Worldwide. Some ministers would have their buddies and they would get them in as the deacons or the deaconesses or uh, or their uh, elders even and, and let them run everything and whatever and don't do that. Get able men such as fear God. And brethren, that's one of the key things we need in the government of God and the whole way of life, as I'll explain. That's the first thing he mentions. Have that awe of God where they really come to understand we must do it God's way. We cannot fool around. Men such as fear God, men of truth. What is truth? We know the ultimate answer is Jesus' statement, John 17, verse 17, Thy word is truth. Men of truth hating covetousness. As you know, almost every day you read in the newspapers about this judge or this sheriff or this uh, senator or somebody being bought off by money. All through the United States, it's just getting awful. Everybody's after something. Hating covetousness and place such over them to be rulers of thousands Rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. If you don't study it carefully and think about it, as the commentaries bring out, some of, some of them, not all of them, but I think this is certainly true, these were not just 50 men or 10 men. These represented 50 families and 10 families, and they had big families. So if one man was captain over ten families, and each family was seven people, then he was he was a king over, a ruler over, you know, the leader over seventy. So it went on down that way, and God had these men in various responsibilities. And let them judge the people at all times. Then, in other words, they had difficulty, then that particular judge or ruler would solve the local difficulty most of the time. But then if they had a big problem, what would they do? And then it shall be that every great matter they'll bring to you. And Moses, and I'm sure when you look at all the examples with his advisors, he didn't sit all alone. When I have any major decision to make, I nearly always have at least three to six or twelve other men helping me with that. And in the Council of Elders, 
14 other men <laughs> and you have a whole bunch of people helping. And when we were to move here from Charlotte, from, uh, from San Diego, by the way, seven years ago, why, uh, as some of the ladies know, I talked to four or five of the women even beside my wife and got at their input and what do you think and how would this work out? And I talked to 10 or 15 different men plus the immediate ministers there. So I probably ended up getting at least 20 to 40 different bits of advice over a period of a year before we moved. And I remember talking to Mrs. Bob League. I talked to Mr. League too, but I remember Mrs. Bob League talking to her directly. I'd heard she really liked Charlotte, but I said, do you really and why do you like it? And she explained it was the nicest place we'd ever lived. And they're on the way here, by the way. They'll be here pretty soon. So he's going to be the associate pastor. And we're going to have Mr. Rodman there continue as some. But he's got so much to do that he can't just do all of that plus be assist Mr. Dr. Winnell running the whole ministry around the world plus writing articles uh, plus all the other things he has to do. So Mr. League will help with that, who's very experienced in that, by the way, even more than Mr. Rod McNair, as you know, have been at it a long time. So we're glad to have him. You'll enjoy having Mr. League here, by the way. He is the best joke teller that I have ever known. Uh, he really is. I think the next to the best was Mr. Carl McNair, who knew a lot of jokes. But Mr. League, he's amazing. He remembers the little double twist right at the end of every story and never forgets. I tend to forget those things, but, but he's really good, so he'll, you'll enjoy him. But anyway, uh, bring the big matters to Moses or the leader, and then with the leader with his advisors might make the bigger decisions. Now, we have it even a little bit up the line more than that. Because we have, of course, the regional pastors. They go to the local pastor, then the regional pastor, then they can come directly to me or to Dr. Nail, and then we'll get together out here. But you have to have that principle. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they bring to you. And he says this will be better because they will be able to bear the burden with you. So here you have management, you have organization. God gives that from the very beginning here as he set up this nation. He is preparing a kingdom. And you and I are going to be in that kingdom ruling over cities or areas. Some of us, as Mr. Armstrong explained, he didn't say everyone would be, but the Philadelphians may often be in, uh, let's say, in the uh, Department of Education or the department of whatever, you know, in, in, the, in the holy city or even before the holy city set up uh, because of the way it talks in Revelation 3. But we may also, some of us, be in these direct jobs. But the principle is the same, and we've got to learn that way of life and how to teach it and how to administer it. So remember the saints, and we're to be real saints. And that doesn't mean nicey-nice, but to be people that obey God. And those that obey God will be the true saints. We have a job to do. A lot of you young men want to be important. Do you really want to be important? Are you going to be important in business 10 or 15 years from now? You think about it. As this country goes down and all the big banks fail and the one, one state after the other, California is technically in bankruptcy right now, as uh, Rush Limbaugh was pointing out the other day, and the day may come before too many more years when they will have to be, they can't declare bankruptcy because they're a sovereign state, but they will have to be put into some kind of receivership and taken over by the federal government and bailed out 
just like the common market of the EU is trying to bail out Greece, you see. They're going down. They've lived high on the hog. They've had all kinds of good things. But this way of life that we're in now, it's, it's, it's going to change. It is changing in front of our very eyes, as many of you know, in so many different ways. So let's get ready for what is really going to happen. I thought, again, Mr. Crespo's fine sermonette, what is really important, if you're on the Titanic, you're not worried about your favorite television set, program tomorrow night. <laughs> you're not worried about, you know, whatever. You're, you're getting your mind on survival, and you're getting your mind on the ultimate reality. So let's understand that. Now turn back to Ezekiel again, Ezekiel 36, brethren, uh, this time. Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, and I want to give you something here in this chapter about how it's going to be. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, he says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, that's us, the American and British descended peoples, Thus says the eternal God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. And he shows how in verse uh, 24, I'm going to take you from among the nations. We will be scattered in slavery and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. At first, well, you know, most of you older brethren understand this. Frankly, it's horrible to think about, but God may only be saving a tithe if the whole American population is up to 320 million by that time, then 32 million would be left. And they would be the ones brought back to the Middle East, but back to the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel won't be that little skinny nation. Again, picture that. When you read the Bible, you'll see that the real promised land was not that little skinny thing on the map today. And they're trying to even squeeze the Jews out of that, these Arabs all around them. The real party is going to give back not just to the Jewish people, but to the American and British descendant of the democratic peoples of northwestern Europe. It was all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River and from the Euphrates River back across the north and part of what is now Saudi Arabia clear to the uh, 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 Nile River. All that area. And from clear down in, in uh, the, the Arabian Desert up until the northern, up, up the, the, Le the Lebanese area, what we call Lebanon today. So it's almost as big as the eastern third of the United States. It was a big area that God originally promised. That's the point. A big area. And when that area, the desert blooms like the rose, as you know it says is going to happen, it's going to be absolutely beautiful over there with perfect climate. I know some of my sons really enjoyed the California climate and longed to be back there. Well, I think California has a good climate, except the business climate is not too good right now. And they're about to go broke. But apart from that, that climate, I don't know if you all, you young people know that, that they call the California climate is often likened to the Middle Eastern climate, the Mediterranean climate. That's what it's, it's, it's like. And in Israel, a very similar climate. It is going to be beautiful over there. And that's where our people will be brought back. I'll bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness. Filthiness? Well, you know what I'm talking about. This stuff on TV showing all kinds of fornication and adultery and sex triangles and homosexuality and every other foul thing they can come up with and from all your idols. And most of our idols are not idols like uh, Adonis or... 
or Diana of the Ephesians. It's just the, the physical things we worship. But we do have literal idols in our churches beside that. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. That's the whole point. A whole different attitude will be in the people. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. People say, God's not going to tell me anything. Well, frankly, brethren, when they come back weeping and repenting and they're shaken to their depths of their being after being in slave camps, they won't talk like that anymore. They won't talk like that anymore. They'll say, I'll be willing to do what you say, God. Please teach me. I'll get rid of your hard heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And again, brethren, let's study those, please, all of you, for your good, not my good. Not going to increase my way of life directly anymore, but it will yours. Study the statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, all kinds of filth you've been in. And I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine on you. And we will have terrible famine that we know in the meantime. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then, verse 31, you shall remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, how you cursed and damned and swore and used God's name, blasphemed God, You'd use dirty, filthy sex language and put down women over and over again in your television and radio shows and personal encounters and so on. You treated women like sex objects and killed and murdered and butchered little baby girls by the tens of millions. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. That's going to happen, brethren, and let us you better believe it. So let's get ready for the coming government of God that's going to straighten out this whole system. And I hope that we can really understand and really want that with all of our hearts because that's so important. So we need a whole different religious system based on the Ten Commandments and on the statutes and on the principles that I have just described. And I want to really have you think about that. Remember, we learn in God's church a way of life and kind of an atmosphere when we come to the Sabbath and we're surrounded by God's people and we have good music and good singing and good atmosphere overall, and with the weekly Sabbath points, again, we sometimes don't emphasize that, but why do we keep the seventh day? Well, most of all, because what God's, because God said so. But He says, in that way, He rested on the seventh day from all His work. Why? He was tired? No. <laughs> he set us an example. The seventh day points to the true God, the Creator God, and every people who's ever turned away from the seventh day begins to lose track of who the true God is, the Creator God. So you learn about the true God and the whole way of life by keeping the Sabbath, by keeping the annual feast. You learn His plan of salvation, going all the way from the sacrifice of Jesus through unleavened bread, picturing putting sin out of your lives, to Pentecost, the need for God's Spirit, to trumpets, Christ is coming again, to atonement, to where we have to have Satan put away, to where we can finally get the world straightened out. Satan has to be banished. And then the feast of ingathering, the time when God is really going to gather in all the big harvest. And the Old Testament often called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of ingathering. 
And then you have the great high day, which only God's church understands that has come down from Mr. Armstrong. The Sardis church does not understand that. Other churches don't understand that. Only those of us were taught by Mr. Armstrong, and yet that is one of the most exciting and powerful and magnificent doctrines there is. And I think you understand that when you understand all the implications, all these Jewish people, so many millions are turned off because they have stories of their parents or grandparents being tortured or perishing in the Holocaust. And they say, where was God? Well, God, they turned away from God. We know that. But is that the end? Because they were blinded? No. Is that the end for these little baby girls that are round and butchered over there in China? And is that the ultimate end for those poor little kids? No. A thousand times no. There is going to be a time when they are brought up out of the grave. And God is going to put flesh on those bones and give them a genuine opportunity. What a wonderful doctrine that is pictured by the great day of, of, of the feast, the last great day as we call it, and the great white throne judgment. So you begin to understand the mind of God as you do that and who the true God is. And in understanding God as the creator and that God made man in his image, he says every creature was to reproduce after his kind. He keeps saying that in Genesis 1. And then he says God reproduced man or produced man and created man in his own image. He didn't say in his kind, but really that's what he was doing. He created us to a limited extent after the God kind, and then we will be born after the God kind by a resurrection. And boy, that's wonderful. That's another one of the magnificent doctrines that only God's church understands. Then we will have tremendous respect for all human life. We will not want to put down or hate or degrade uh, our ladies. We will deeply respect and love and admire and take care of our wives, our daughters, our sisters, our mothers, and all our Christian sisters all over the earth made in God's image. We will not take little babies for granted and kill them even before they are born because they are created in the image of God. Frankly, brethren, this is a side here, I guess, but I'm meditating on that. We're all going to have, especially we men, a different attitude towards sex. Most young men growing up in the Western world, and I assume from what I read to maybe a slightly different way in the Eastern world, China and India, they don't respect women any more than we do. In fact, times a lot less. They just kill them or put them down even more. But men are taught by these movies and television shows and novels to think of women as sex objects. And again, the whole way of life is going to change. They'll think every human being is made in God's image. We're going to have a whole different approach to everything. Also, brethren, we're going to have a greater respect for the creation as a whole and for doing natural things. We're going to want to eat natural foods. We, we want to eat fresh foods that have not spoiled as yet, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, but will spoil. So foods that would, can spoil, but before they spoil. And the doctors, not doctors, but some of the doctors and all kinds of nutritionists are beginning to understand that. They had a great big major article in the Wall Street Journal here on, I think it's on Tuesdays is their health section they put in once a week, and a major article on exercise and showing how in the last few decades, America's got diabetes, heart trouble, everything, just a massive increase in all that. 
And as the television viewing has increased, as the use of the Internet has increased, a lot of young men, especially young women, are getting fatter and fatter and fatter because they sit all the time and we don't get exercise. And how healthy we would be if most people would learn to exercise at least 30 or 40 minutes a day, a minimum of 30 minutes a day, five days a week. The Wall Street Journal is not some right, right-wing nut job. They're the best newspaper on earth. And, of course, thinking of it from the Bible point of view, how did the ancient Israelites live? They walked. <laughs> Everywhere they went, they walked. And I used to think they rode horseback. I thought of Abraham got his army and went off to rescue Lot. And then you start reading it carefully. And my friend Mordecai Joseph pointed out that in those times, the history showed there were very few horses. And the men in, in the armies, when you get to reading carefully, they were running. They were running and they were walking, and they just walked and walked and ran and walked, and, and boy, they were in shape carrying their spear too and all the rest of it. They got exercise. They didn't need to go to the Y to get their aerobics in. And one of the scriptures there, I think it's in John, says Jesus walked in Galilee to get the written. That's what it is. He walked in Galilee. He would walk here and there all day long. He was walking. So you and I need more exercise, but we're going to realize that God had certain things that were natural that we ought to be doing. And in that article in the journal, they showed how that many now in the scientific and medical community have begun to realize that this type of exercise would really obviate the necessity for all kinds of potions and pills that people take for mood swings and for this and that and something else. Exercise would just cure the whole thing if they would just get more exercise. Natural, have respect for God and what God said in motion. Women would learn to nurse their babies. Back during my mother's time, she was reading and telling me about, oh, the doctors are finding out now it's better to have these formulas and so on. Then later, the doctors and the scientists fell, swung back the other way. And now they say, no, it's really better. Breast milk is a lot better than any milk out of some bottle. God made it that way. And again, all these other things, you know, natural childbirth and natural this and natural that is always better to the, in a normal situation. Also, uh, the, so the whole religious system is going to have to be changed to teach that entire way of life, plus, of course, worshiping and adoring the Creator and having profound respect for Jesus Christ as our Savior and High Priest and having profound respect even in tomorrow's world, brethren, we as spirit beings won't think of it in the same way because we will be members of the God family, but we will have to continue to teach people all kinds of scriptures such as uh, John 15, John 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You can accomplish nothing, spiritually speaking. In one sense, you can't accomplish anything at all. Uh, but, you know, it depends on how you want to look at it. You can't draw your next breath unless Christ lets you. He, he's governing the universe. So you see what I mean. If you want to get extreme, okay, let's get extreme. But just thinking of spiritual things, you can't do anything apart from Christ. He has to live his life in you and will have to teach the people that it's not just believe on sweet Jesus off in heaven somewhere, but he has to come and live his life in you to help you overcome, to help you grow, to help you live the right way of life. Then in the government, 
We've already described the system and the organization, but it's to be based on the principles of the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and so on, and having men appointed and spirit beings appointed who are capable for the jobs at hand. And back in Deuteronomy 1, turn back here and, and look what God said here, inspired by God, of course, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, he says here, uh, verse 11, May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised. How can I alone bear your problems, Moses is saying, and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men. They had that form of government. But remember, they're to be wise, understanding, not just wise, but having the grasp of the ultimate purposes of life and knowledgeable men from your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered and said the thing which you've told us is good. So I took your heads of tribes and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Then I commanded you, verse 16, I commanded your judges at that time, meaning the leaders, here are the cases between your brethren, and notice, brethren, because you women are involved in this too. When you're made spirit beings, you'll be doing the same thing and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You're not to play funny games. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of any man's presence. Don't think, I can't make a right judgment. This man is too important. You know, whatever you might think. No, you can't think that way. Don't do that. Fear God and, and do the right thing. For the judgment is God's. The case that is not or is too hard, you bring it to me. And so he told them that way of life to be fair and impartial in every way they possibly could and were to learn to judge righteously and ask God for wisdom and understanding uh, as we carry out God's government. Just giving some overview briefly of each of these areas about the educational system. We'll have to have a whole sermon on each one of these things. But one thing in God's educational system that Mr. Armstrong mentioned we all ought to really understand is that often we bypass the parents today and we send our children off to schools to be taught by carnal men and women who don't know the purpose of life themselves and today may be homosexuals or lesbians or whatever they are. But God said back here in Deuteronomy, I mean Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, or even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's something a lot of us have not fully understood or even practiced as we ought. But one thing, I think many of us have taught our children the Ten Commandments and God's way of life, but didn't teach them as much as we should have. I don't think I taught any of my children, the old as well as the young, a way of life. And I think this is, when you think about it, the way that he should go. In other words, my parents were carnal, but they taught me from the time I was, I don't know, eight or ten years old to save money. It was during the Depression, and they got me a savings account. It was the first national bank in Joplin, Missouri, 
And they were, of course, unconverted, so I would get money for Christmas sometimes. They'd give me presents, or Aunt Kay would give me a check, or different ones would give me a couple dollars or whatever. The dollar was worth ten times as much back there, by the way. And so I got money, and they would encourage me not to spend it, but to put it in the savings account. And I took pride in that. I kept building that up, you see. And uh, a whole way of life, of taking care of things, of taking care of your body, of getting regular exercise, an entire way of life to teach your children to prize education. Constantly around our house, as I grew up, my parents were talking about education because my mother and all of her siblings, she had just one brother, all went to Baker University first, which is a little small college in, in Baldwin City, Kansas, but they virtually all graduated from Baker University. And two or three went on to get master's degrees after that but you need to teach your children this way of life a way of life based on quality on culture on education in every way and that is an important part of of their training and i hope that we can all learn that beside the ten commandments and just the biblical principles which they may not fully understand if they're carnal but at least you should try to teach them those things plus a way of life of honesty integrity Respect for authority, saving your money, building your health, and having quality, a quality life in every way. And all of you should learn that because we're going to have to teach that, brethren, to the whole world. The whole world in a few years. The next area is media. We need to have a whole new approach to the media. And uh, I think you all recognize that. Our Media in tomorrow's world will no doubt have far more in, in, uh, input from travelogues and things that are beautiful describing various parts of the world and God's creation and things like that rather than all this make-believe fighting and killing and blowing up planets out in space or all the stuff they get into today. And it will be family-oriented and talk about family, which may seem boring to some of you young people, but the way of life after people have suffered so much Seeing all this other stuff, they'll realize that needs to be the way of life to teach my children and my grandchildren. And the motion pictures we have, the same way. The music that we have, the same way. My wife was showing me one time because we had, I guess in her car or my car, there's different radio stations, you know, that went way back. One station would have the music from the 30s. And the other station would have the music from the 40s. And we just dialed through it one time for sitting there several minutes and a minute or two on each one. It's amazing. Back in the 1930s, you had uh, Over the Rainbow and and uh, just beautiful slow pieces that might seem boring to kids today. But they were beautiful and soft and lovely and positive. And then in the Second World War, they got a little bit more lively, but they were all very positive, you know. And uh, we did it before, and we can do it again. And certain, uh, I'm coming in on a wing and a prayer, the plane that got one wing shot off. But they were going to make it. They were going to make it. Positive. And love songs that were just absolutely beautiful about night and day and all the things you are and so on. Then you get in the 50s, and it got a little bit more jazzy and noisy, but still very beautiful pieces with melody and harmony and beauty. And then in the 60s, you had Elvis the Pelvis come in and kind of a shouting and hip-wiggling thing uh, involved. Maybe not such good music, but some of it was okay, but some of it was not. 
And then the Beatles came along in the middle or late 60s, and we had these young English kids come over here screaming like wild, wild banshees. We would have run them out of town if they'd come back when I was growing up, really. They would say, what's going on? These idiots come in here screaming like that. And I'm not trying to make fun of them, but just that began to come in where the young people go, oh, that's exciting. Okay, it's exciting in a kind of a hysterical way, but is that really what you want? And when you think and analyze it, what did the culture of the time each reflect? Then you begin to have the student riots in Chicago and hundreds of buildings were burned down. You begin to have all the other stuff, the assassination of President Kennedy, just one thing after the other, the, the race riots, the class riots, everything. You had this wild music typifying that time. And then since then, it's got even worse every single decade. You can sense the difference. So at some point, with Christ's guidance, I can't say I have the perfect wisdom to know exactly how to do it, but we're going to have a different kind of music. And you look back in the Bible, and at that time, music was regarded more as it was in the Middle Ages because under the influence of the Catholic Church, but they did pick it up, if you read books about it, from the Jews. It was often an aspect of worship, of worship and adoration, Great swelling themes, you know, you, if you don't hear the music, I mean, the words, if they have a beautiful symphony orchestra and a violin obligato, Ave Maria, and you just listen to that, it is beautiful. It's just the words are not good, of course. But at any rate, some of those pieces are rich and beautiful, and you're going to have more of the kind of music that ought to be done at that time. What about sports? Again, you're not going to have boxing. I was a boxing champion two different years and got this thing under my lip. Do I advocate boxing? No. It, you're always going to get hurt. It's just a question of how many of your brains get knocked out. Some of you will say, well, it must have happened to you, Meredith. Okay. <laughs> but, but at any rate, I just got a little bit, I guess, which is good. I got out of it after two, two years of just about five or six weeks each in amateur stuff. But they're going to have the right kind of sports you know, Ambassador College has a little taste of the kingdom of God. It wasn't perfect at all, but we captured that approach to music I talked about to a certain degree and had quality. Mr. Armstrong always wanted to have quality. He taught respect for ladies and the women and courtesy and kindness and good music and good art and good literature. And the sports we had were mainly basketball and track and tennis and uh, swimming that were not contact sports in the sense of banging into someone else on purpose. You see what I mean? And over in Europe, we had soccer. And if soccer is correctly played, European football, it doesn't have to be too violent either. Just like basketball can be violent if it's wrongly played. But that kind of thing could be very vigorous. And still, you're not directly hitting another man right in the, the head to jar his brain and to cause the brain to, brain to start bleeding, literally, and damage his brain. When I was going to the YMCA growing up, which I went to hundreds of times, there used to be this guy that was about, he wasn't real old, he was just 45 or 50 years old and stocky and kind of strong looking, but we called him happy because he'd been a professional boxer and he got hit in the head too much. How you doing? Hi, yeah, hi, yes, And he'd go around and just, he didn't know how to think. His brain had been damaged by getting hit in the head too much. And that happens to many professional football players. There have been articles on that, you know, and they're blocking and tackling and banging each other, as well as boxers and certain other sports. So a whole way of life is going to be taught 
that makes sense. And you will see that. Okay, brethren, I want to uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3 now. Closing, running a little bit over here. I better be careful. I don't want any of you to pull the trap door on me. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, and brethren, if you have been baptized and you've come up out of that watery grave, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Are we going to just picture heaven? No. But what is Christ doing? Christ and the Father are right now planning, will Joe Smith be over five cities or ten cities? Will Mary Jones be over five cities or ten cities? And we need to think about what's really ahead as being planned in heaven and in God's kingdom and God's family, you see. Set your mind on what God is doing, what God is thinking about, not just on your current television show or your family problems or whatever. Not on things on the earth. For you died. Your old self should be dead. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, and He is going to appear soon, we thank God for that, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You will be given a powerful, magnificent spiritual body, radiant. And you will be a king and a priest in the coming kingdom of God, a ruler and a teacher to help, to build, to encourage, to heal, to bless, and to guide hundreds and probably thousands, maybe later millions of human beings and help them also later become members of the family of God. That is your calling, to become a king or a priest, a teacher. Be preparing for the genuine reward that is just ahead of you.